Are you ready to challenge rhetoric? Today is Tuesday, August 30th. My name is Sherry Roberts, and I'm your host for Challenging the Rhetoric. Welcome to the show. Months ago, we first heard that a National Wildlife Refuge near Burns, Oregon, had been commandeered by a group of people lobbying for the release of federal control over public lands. Unlike most D.C. lobbyists that come in suits and ties waving fistfuls of dollars, these ones dressed in camouflage and cowboy hats, and they waved an arsenal of weapons in an attempt to get their way. Public lands in the Northwest, especially in Oregon, are a big deal to the citizens that take advantage of their beauty and the accessibility. In Oregon, most residents are pretty happy with the way that the federal government manages those public lands. There is more to Portlandia than just the TV show, and keeping it weird isn't just about the hidden tunnels, the Shanghai tunnels beneath the city of Portland, or a never-ending selection of microbrews or anything like that. Being an Oregonian really comes at a price that those wishing to live here are usually willing to pay. Those that come and visit here tend to not recognize that, whatever their reason for coming. But that price that we pay to live here, and I am an Oregonian, is a price of respect and respect for this beautiful place in which we live and what it means to be an Oregonian. When the so-called cowboy ranchers and their militia compatriots rode into town, that respect for the people and the very land they claimed to be fighting for was sadly lacking. Instead, those that were watching, for the most part, saw arrogance mixed with ignorance. Arrogance towards any who dared speak out against them, and ignorance in the ways of this state and the laws of this land. There is some ignorance there with regards to the Constitution, although many of the people that are involved in this situation believe the reverse to be true. Joining me tonight is Ryan Haas. Ryan is an editor with Oregon Public Broadcasting. He helped lead OPB's coverage of the Malheur National Wildlife Refuge occupation, you know, that little thing we like to call the uh, Oregon standoff. He's OPB's lead editor on an upcoming podcast being produced specifically for the trial. It's called This Land is Our Land. But before I bring Ryan on the air, let me give you all those details that you need to know, like I do every week, so that you can participate with us during the live show. During each live broadcast, you can interact on the Facebook page at facebook.com forward slash challenging the rhetoric dot news. You can find me on Twitter at CTR News Feed. You can follow Ryan at Ryan J. Haas. Haas is H-A-A-S. Tonight, we're using the hashtag CTR and Oregon Standoff. All of the stories I cover are available on the Challenging the Rhetoric website at challengingtherhetoric.news. There's some news stories up there about co-defendant Jason Blomgren, as well as Blaine Cooper and some others. You can chat with us in the live listener chat room during the show at blogtalkradio.com forward slash challenging the rhetoric with Sherry Roberts. Sherry is spelled C-H-E-R-I. Click on show number 42. The chat room will be right underneath that slider that you see. And if you're already on the page and you don't see it, just hit refresh and scroll down. If anybody's in the chat room complaining, I can't peek right now, but if anybody's saying they can't hear the show, tell them to hit refresh and it should start or to hit play at that point. Remember, this is a dialogue. It's not a debate. We don't do debates here. There's no personal attacks on the show or in the chat room or on the social media. There's no over-aggression or trolling that I ever allow. So uh, let's have a good night and a good show together and a good conversation. As always, don't forget, if you're listening to an archive, there is no live chat. So here we go. Um, let's get our guest on here. I, I have a lot of respect for tonight's guest. Ryan has. He's been an incredible sounding board for me for many months. And this man's been a journalist for more than a decade. He's worked at newspapers. He's worked at broadcast media, both in the United States and overseas. He's the lead editor for OPB's new podcast, This Land is Our Land. And uh, I'm just really, really happy to have him here. Ryan, welcome to Challenging the Rhetoric. Hi, Sherry. Thanks for having me. It's uh, it's good to finally get you on the show. <laughs> yeah, um, I know I talked a little bit, you know, about your background, but could you tell the listeners, uh, you know, a little fuller, a broader width of your background? Sure. So I have been a journalist probably since, I don't know, 2004 or so when I graduated college. Um, I've worked at newspapers in Illinois, Florida, Oregon, and overseas, I, I worked and lived as a journalist in the Caribbean for about three years, um, covering politics and various other things down there. And I've lived here in Oregon for 
about five years now, um, and I've been at OPB for three of those years. Nice. I've loved. I've I've always loved OPB. I've worked in uh, Portland media for Viacom and CBS before Alpha Broadcasting took over, as well as for Fisher Broadcasting when they had the radio properties. And um, the media scene here is really really nice. I I enjoy it, and OPB is just a. Uh, very much love station um, media outlet here in Oregon. Now, is it, is it correct? You ha you actually have a degree in rhetoric. Uh, yes, in uh, my degree is actually in English and creative writing or rhetoric. Yes, uh, was the official okay. name of the degree at University of Illinois. Yeah, I just find it I find it funny because I think that people, you know, obviously the name of the show, challenging the rhetoric. Um, you know, a lot of people, you know, they I think that they don't always understand what rhetoric is, and it's just really a means of speaking convincingly. Yes. Right. Exactly. Totally. It's it's oratory, right? So, <laughs> being able to get your message <laughs> across to people. Well, unfortunately, sometimes in media, um, we have all those, you know, millions of dollars of studies that they put out for for advertising and and for generating advertising revenue and how to make advertising work and stuff and that 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 kind of rhetoric is a little bit different <laughs> but it's yeah, still rhetoric, rhetoric nonetheless you know you're going to smell like roses by using this that and the other so let's let's jump right into the Oregon standoff um let's talk about the situation itself and kind of you know working for OPB I I doubt that I heard about it in the same way in which you did as things were happening so can you kind of tell the listeners what it was like at OPB when this happened? Did you guys kind of know you were already, you know, aware that the rally was going to happen and all that, but as far as when the actual takeover happened? Yeah, well, I mean, we got our first sense that something big was going to happen a few days before the rally actually took place because we heard that the Bundys were coming or planning to come to attend this rally and um that's just kind of indicator that maybe there's something more than just a peaceful rally was going to take place there or some sort of extended protest. So we sent a couple journalists up there for the rally to keep an eye on it. And as we had kind of predicted, uh, things did not go as originally planned. And uh, things moved to the refuge. And we had journalists there who followed the Bundys out to the refuge, um, as well as the other folks, uh, Ryan Payne and some of the other people who were in that initial group that went out there. Um, and we were asking them questions from the beginning. You know, what are you, what are you guys doing here? What are, what are your thoughts? Why, why are you out at this refuge right now? And after that, it was uh, 41 days of straight coverage pretty much for us. You know, we're not a huge station. We don't have hundreds of people. And so it was, it was a real team effort to make sure we provided as comprehensive and extensive of coverage as we could throughout the occupation. One of the great things about OPB's coverage on the case is, um, I mean, you guys obviously do a lot of straight reporting, which is, which is great, but unlike like the Oregonian, they've done great reporting too, don't get me wrong, but with OPB I find um, there's been more articles that like had some heart behind it or had some more mm -hmm. color in their stories in the sense of, you know, mannerisms, behaviors, demeanors of things as it was playing out, not just, you know, cut and dry news. And mm -hmm. so, and I think a lot of people um, that gravitate to this story are also gravitating to that aspect of the news telling of it. Um, when when yeah, your team is there... For, uh, sorry, go, go ahead. ahead. No, oh, go ahead. I was just going to say, you know, for us, like I said, we're not a big place. So for us, the question we always ask ourselves in the newsroom is how do we cover this story smarter, right? How do we do this better? We don't have the resources to cover every twist and turn um, in a straight reporting style. So how do we do it in a way that's going to be more in-depth and more intelligent than our competitors? And that's that's really what we set out every day to do here at OPB. You guys do a great job of it. Um, when your team was there, was there at any time, did they have any kind of fears with what was going on out there? Did they all feel safe, <laughs> or did any of them have any issues? You know, I, I think it ebbed and flowed. You know, that initial, the initial few days were 
there's definitely tension because we didn't know who the players were. We didn't know, you know, what their intentions were. And obviously when you see people armed, you know, you need to be careful. Now, that's not to say that they were being threatening or anything like that, but anytime there's a firearm involved in a situation, it, it's this element of, of unknowability, right? So you don't know what's necessarily going to happen. Um, so I would say, that was kind of the initial feeling. And then, you know, as the occupation went on and it was kind of this routine thing of these uh, press conferences and whatever else, you know, you get a little more comfortable. You've talked to people a little bit um, and it's not so bad. And then, of course, you know, we had January 26th, the arrests and the unfortunate death of Mr. Finnicum. Um, and that, again, introduced an element of chaos that was was uh, made people uncomfortable, and, and you know, there, many of our journalists received threats while they were there. Um, you know, many received very kind offerings of of support as well. So I, I you know, it it was never one thing or the other. It, it was you know, some some days it was dangerous, some days it wasn't, and you just kind of had to deal with it as a situational basis well you know during the um those last couple of weeks uh, with the final four at the refuge john sepulveda was um able to communicate with david fry um mm -hmm. was that uh john put out a lot of um very heartfelt stuff uh with regards to what he was writing but specifically one article about fry and how he had come to be at the refuge and his relationship with Lavoie Finnicum and stuff, and for me, on the on the the end user of what was coming out of OPB in those final days, you could really feel the tension and the, the very real fears that I think everybody else is feeling. And I think sometimes people that are consuming media don't necessarily think that the people that are producing or curating media mm. feel those things. But I, it really came across, I think, more so than any of the legacy medias out there, that there was, you know, genuine care involved, especially in worry at that time. Was, was that true? I mean, was that kind of the tension around there? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, especially, you know, people like David Fry, who we talked to extensively, you know, I spent many hours on the phone with David Fry myself, even though, you know, I wasn't out at the refuge reporting. I was still here doing reporting while our staff was out there and, you know, I would talk to David and just ask him, you know, like, why, why are you here? Why are you doing this? You know, is this really what you want to do? And, you know, on some level, yes, we're journalists and our job is to report, but after 30, 30 days of talking to somebody, you kind of get to know them a little bit and, and you sort of, you know, I don't think anybody wanted to see something bad happen to David Fry or anybody else out there. And so, yeah, I think that was genuine what you're hearing is concern for people's lives, you know, regardless of what you think of their politics. I, I don't think anybody wanted to see someone get hurt or for there to be a shootout or something um, worse to happen. And so, yeah, that concern was genuine. What was the biggest challenges that that you, um, you know, as an editor and a reporter, or or for the staff in general, that you guys faced with the occupation itself prior, up, leading up to the arrest, up to the point of arrest? What was like the toughest thing? Mm, I think the toughest thing was one trying to figure out how to report this fairly. Um, you know. I think you kind of touched on it a little bit in your intro to the show where you say, you know, we're Oregonians and there's this sort of sense of pride as an Oregonian and you have these guys coming in who are largely out of state saying, we know what's right for you. And I think trying to understand their motives and, and report those in a fair way, especially when um, some of the things they're telling you don't add up necessarily or people lie to you. Um, as a journalist, which is always infuriating. <laughs> um, <laughs> right. I, I, right. You know, it's like I'm trying to report your side of things, but when you're referring to, you know, articles of the Constitution that don't say what you think they say and 
you're proceeding to lie to me about things like, oh, did you touch government computers or not when we saw you do it and you say you didn't, it, it's hard to treat or to give somebody credibility when they're doing everything to undermine their own credibility, you know? Right. Did you have? Did you find a lot of that uh, during the occupation? Did you guys encounter uh, that a lot? Yeah, it depends who who we would talk to, but definitely, I think, you know, people would say one thing, and we would have them on tape saying something, such as like, uh, for example, Ryan Bundy saying, "If the people of Burns want us to leave, we'll leave," which we had on tape, and then you know, 30 minutes or a couple hours later, Ammon says, that's not the case. And then Ryan Bundy says, I never said that. Well, what do you do? Right. I mean, it's like, you did say it. We have you on tape saying it. You you know, just because you say that didn't happen doesn't mean it didn't happen. And, and so it's this hard thing of like, do you just report everything they say as fact, or do you bring up yeah, you are lying about this, or you changed your mind at the very least in a very short amount of time. And, you know, how do you report that fairly but still accurately? If, I don't know that you can say or want to say, so no harm, no foul, if not. But mm-hmm. um, I'm curious, I think everybody would be curious, who, who you felt um, was the most difficult to deal with from the from the refuge. Um. I think, you know, I I wouldn't say difficult, but I think some people were more secretive than others. I think that, you know, there was definitely this air about Ryan Payne that he did not want to talk to journalists and did not want to be approached by them or ask questions about what they were doing. Um, So, whereas, like, someone like Lavoie Finicum, you could just go up and talk to any time, and he was fine with it. Um, And so... you kind of over over time learned who was approachable and who wasn't. And, you know, that's bad to some degree because it's like you want the whole picture, not just what's being filtered to you through certain spokespeople. Um, right. But, yeah, I, I would say that the challenging folks were the ones who didn't want to talk or didn't want to be questioned either. You know, that was one thing is like – as a journalist, our job often is to question people's statements and try and get them to explain what they mean. And for some people there, you know, that was frowned upon. It wasn't, we weren't allowed to necessarily ask those questions. Um, Or, you know, if you tried to, you would be shouted down by Pete Santilli or something who would start yelling at you (laughs) and chasing you around. And so it's, it was challenging to do our jobs in the sense of people didn't want us to actually do our jobs. They wanted us to report what we were told, and that was it. Have you ever, speaking of Santilli, have you ever, uh, anywhere that, that that you've worked in, in media, have you ever encountered somebody like Santilli at, at, when, while trying to cover, you know, these events, these things that oh, happen? Oh, I mean, sure, yeah. I mean, when I worked in the Caribbean, like I said, I was covering politics, and it's very different down there. There's no, um, the media is very much in its infancy, and oftentimes publications are affiliated with political parties. And so, in that sense, yes, I, I met many journalists there, or people who describe themselves as journalists, who would only report their viewpoints or the viewpoints of their party or the people that they represented and would be combative to some degree, you know, not physically, but certainly verbally combative to people who would question those beliefs. And, and yeah, so I don't, I don't think it's unheard of what Pete, what Pete's approach is. Um, he was certainly very vocal, but that's who he is, I suppose. 
<laughs> this is true. You know, right now they're they're throwing out a lot of talk of with regards to essentially um, advocacy journalist calling you know saying mm-hmm. trying to position him that he's an advocacy journalist. But for me, and I I could see why they're positioning that. I, I had even uh, alluded to such in something I wrote many months ago with regards to Pete. But the um, you know he certainly advocates. There's there's no question there. But I, I think that one of the things that's missing um, is these particular groups of people, of which I've been a part of in the past, as you know, um, one of the things they also advocate for is, or against, is propaganda. But if you're an advocacy journalist and your journalism is all tied to one cause, one thing, one stance, one issue, one side, then isn't that also just propaganda? Totally. I mean, I think that anytime you're presenting only one side of the story, that that definitely falls in the in the view of propaganda. I mean, it 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 can be hard. I mean, sometimes you as a journalist have to present ideas you don't agree with, um, but that's your job. It's not your job to tell people what they should believe. It's your job to uh, present ideas in a fair way and let people decide for themselves. Yeah, I, I take a lot of crap sometimes for some of the people I've brought on my show, on this show for the last couple of years, and then on other shows that I've done, because it's like, you know, maybe the, the choir of listeners, the, you know, your P1s or whatever, don't, they, they, they don't appreciate who or why, and it's like, well, wait, there's more here, you know, just bear with me, yeah. be open, but, you know, because because you have to, and it's, to me, for me, it's it's really about, trying to understand where somebody is coming from so that I can better understand what the problem is. Let's uh, kind of jump into, you know, the Oregon standoff as a news story now. After the arrest, mm-hmm. you know, we've had all these hearings. We've got, uh, you know, 26 co-defendants and, and, you know, and then, you know, all the plea deals and all of that. Being a small staff at OPB, I mean, I know what it's like for me being one person. Um, yeah, and having, you have you know, it way worse than hands do. and temples. <laughs> <laughs> but still, I understand the juggling because, like in many conversations I've had with you over the months, it's like all like, why aren't you doing this? Or go, can you, you know? But you, you have other news to cover. When it's just me, I, I'm kind of stuck in this until after the trials, if I want to do it right. But um, for you guys now, with all the different co-defendants, with ever, all the twists and turns, uh, two trials for Oregon standoff, all the sentencing hearings that are coming up. How has the story changed for you? How are you picking and choosing which documents or hearings to report on? And then after mm-hmm. that, we'll we'll kind of jump into how you're going to handle the trial. Yeah, totally. I mean, I think you make a very good point is that, you know, there are so many twists and turns in this in the court filings because, you know, that's just how court cases are. There's a lot of debate that goes back and forth um, between prosecutors and defense attorneys about what is actually going to be at allowed in the trial um and i think for us what we tried to do is you know it would be great if we could cover all of those things but at the end of the day not all of them matter right like there's some things where it's like you know a pre-trial release is important to the people that are being held but at the end of the day that doesn't change what is going to be um, the determining factors in their guilt or innocence before the jury, right? You know, that's just more about their comfort and their ability to speak to their lawyers, which is an important thing. And, you know, places like the Oregonian do a good job of making sure that all of those things are covered. But for us, it's, it's more about looking at, okay, what is going to affect what happens in this trial? So for instance, you know, whether Facebook evidence is allowed in this trial is an important thing because a lot of the evidence in this case is on social media. So that's something we want to cover. Um, You know, David Fry's mental health uh, status is something we want to cover because that could affect the outcome of this trial. Um, And our goal is to always think about, you know, what does this trial mean in the big picture? What does this mean for the lands movement in the West? What does this mean for people's trust in the federal government in the West? Um, And so we always want to put our reporting decisions through that lens and say, does this meet uh, our objectives in reporting on this story, you know? 
And so I think that's kind of how we go about determining what we cover and when we cover things. Yeah, I know for me that, uh, I mean, there's been a couple things that were, you know, like Mike Arnold no longer being Ammon's attorney, and mm. there was another one, I forget mm-hmm. what, that were that were pretty bigger stories that I actually kind of got the info first, and that, that was kind of, you know, it was a little thrill for me, obviously, just being this totally. little independent person. It's but, always um, good to get the scoop, like, right? <laughs> Yeah, yeah, it was it was awesome. I mean, Maxine over at uh, the Oregonian, she was hot on my tails on the Mike Arnold one, but <laughs> I think it's because mm-hmm. of a tweet I put out maybe. But, you know, it was um, – but, you know, I don't necessarily strive for that. You know, I, I'm mm-hmm. really trying to – because of my past experience, you know, I have – there's a certain closeness to this particular case that I have. So I'm always, like, looking, you know, at what you guys are covering and stuff, and I would much rather source some of it. Um, than try to compete with it. And I, I certainly don't have the resources, uh, you know, that you do, and you guys don't have the resources that, say, the Oregonian does and, and so on and so forth. But it's it's I've been, um, you know, just over the months been able to kind of maneuver through, and, and it's been great because it in, in a weird sense, because we're all in a, or, Oregon, you know, that – it's it's an odd camaraderie in a sense, mm-hmm. uh, but I enjoy it and I appreciate it. I, I certainly appreciate uh, you know that having met you and being able to interact with you and bounce ideas and thoughts and ask questions of things I don't understand. Some of it is new to me, but you know, being here in Oregon, you've been out here five years now. Um, you know, surely a lot of the staff, you know, are also people that have been in Oregon for some time and, mm-hmm. you know, people that you know just from living here and stuff. And, and I'm sure that in, in the time that you have been here that, you you know, the, the mindset that I started in the opening of the show that people have in Oregon, what do you think, how much is this going to, you know, is this case going to change anything here in Oregon per se and then versus maybe on a national scale? Well, you know, I think that a few interesting things have already happened since the occupation. You know, we've seen um, some challenges to county leaders, you know, people who are running for office, who are more aligned with the self-described patriot movement. Um, And I think we've seen, you know, I believe, if I remember right now, I don't have the data, but I was talking to uh, OPB reporter Amanda Peacher the other day, and she said that you know there has been a rise in membership within groups like you know the Three Percent or uh, the Oath Keepers, and so I think we have seen the needle move a little bit. Um, you know that may also be it the fact that this has been a very polarizing uh, presidential cycle. You know, people who have Mm -hmm. a stronger mistrust of the government, uh, you know, aligning with certain candidates. Um, And so I think that in Oregon, we've already seen the effects of this a little bit. I do think, you know, the outcome of this trial is very important. I think if these guys end up... uh, winning their case or, you know, getting off with a fairly light punishment, I think that says to a lot of people that this was a protest that is protected under law and these sorts of actions could continue in the future. I, I agree with you there. I, I it's I think um, simultaneously, although I agree 100% what you just said, I also do have some concern that um, harshness on on the judge's part could also result into some actual events of violence. Um, I I know it's completely different scenarios on one hand, but I start thinking Rodney King stuff, um, and you know, wondering is that something that that maybe your staff has has discussed at all with the trials, you know, getting ready to start here in a week. Uh, what do you mean, as in violence breaking out before the trial? Before, during, after, you know, on verdict days or, you know, just problems mm-hmm. outside of the courthouse with, you know, either with supporters or non-supporters or just, you know, upset over a verdict or something that goes down in the courtroom. I mean, is, 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 I, I think it, do editorial stuff, is that something that you guys discuss, like safety measures and oh. stuff for those? 
potential yeah, scenario? Yeah, definitely. That is something, yeah, definitely. I mean, that's something that, you know, long before this happened, uh, you know, we talk about training. But I will say that even since this standoff started, you know, we've had actual uh, experts come in to OPB and give all of us uh, kind of a refresher training on on situational awareness and how to uh, protect yourself if someone confronts you or how to de-escalate a situation like that. Um, so all of our staff, reporters, editors, anyone who's sort of working on this is very aware of that. Um, and beyond that, you know, it, if some sort of incident were, were to happen uh, downtown at the courtroom or whatever, you know, that's all part of our planning anyway. You know, we have breaking news plans in place. Who's who's on call? How do we cover this? What's the order of operations for getting the information out there for people as quickly and as accurately as possible? And so, yeah, yeah, I mean, we're definitely prepared. Um, hopefully it does not come to that, though. Uh, good to know. Hang tight for a minute, Ryan. I'm going to jump over to Liar sure. of the Week. Um, you're still with me, but just give me a second here. In a recorded statement published online, standoff militant Blaine Cooper tells anybody who's listening, that he was forced to lie under oath and that he stands in defiance until the end. Cooper is one of 19 individuals indicted in Nevada and one of 26 indicted in Oregon for, their particip for his participation in the armed standoffs that are involving this notorious Bundy family. Obviously, their reputation preceded them um, before they even arrived in Oregon for the rally and such. In an attempt to clear his name amid all the rumors that he, like uh, another co-defendant, co Brian Buda Cavalier, is a cooperating witness for the prosecution, Cooper says that his honor and integrity are worth even more than a life with his children. Here's exactly what he said. This is a quote for, that I uh, transcribed from this call. It says, uh, I took a non-cooperative plea for six years. I could have walked out the front door, but my honor and integrity mean more to me than a life with my children. I will now spend the next four and a half years in prison because I refuse to work with the federal government, and I refuse to turn on my brothers. Buddha, a.k.a. Brian Cavalier, was going to testify against me and two other people about an alleged felon in possession of firearm at the Bundy Ranch, which carries 10 years in the District of Nevada and five years for every round that's in the firearm. I was stuck in a rock and a hard place, and this was the only logical solution without having to throw any of my brothers under the bus. Freedom isn't free. It's a small price to pay for standing for the Constitution and defending and protecting the Bundys. It's never an easy choice to make. I've done what I could for my country. I stand in defiance till the end, and now I will serve my time with honor and respectably. I think he means respectfully. There are a lot of people who, if given the same situation, would use every opportunity to go home. As in my case, I could have walked right out the front door, and I chose to sit here for six years instead. I took the same plea as Jerry DeLemus. Me and him did see each other at court, and we both talked about that we did not want to do this plea. We actually had to actively lie in the courtroom under oath, with the judge fully aware that we were lying, admitting to a crime we didn't commit out of fear of what they could do to us if we did not take the plea. Given that the indictment is superseding, they can add whatever they want to it at any time, and the felon in possession, with the overwhelming evidence they had against me on the alleged possession charge, I had no choice but to cop to a non-cooperative plea in six years. Six years is a long time. The judge, if she wants to, could give me 20 years. She does not have to go along with the plea, and this was stated in the courtroom. I'm taking a huge gamble with my life right now, but it was the only choice I thought I could make. Regardless of Cooper's beliefs and choices, the fact that he lied under oath, you know, we're always hearing from these patriots, oaths, and the oaths that matters. There's groups called the oaths. There's like a few of them. Uh, Mo had one. Cassidy has one. This oath. What oath? Okay, the, we're talking about these same oaths that that they're bragging about lying under, um, you know, and, and 
publishing it, letting it be publicly published after taking a plea, a plea deal, which is in direct violation of the plea agreement itself. The judge hasn't ruled on this plea deal, and the judge can, as Blaine Cooper said, disregard his current negotiations. So will the judge say what I say? And that's shame on you, Blaine Cooper. Real patriots, don't lie under oath. You are challenging the rhetoric's liar of the week. Okay, so Ryan, you're still with me, yes? Yeah, of course. <laughs> okay, um, so when let, let's jump into uh, this new endeavor OPD's got going on. So we have a trial that's getting ready to start, one of, of at least two that are going to happen with Oregon standoff. And you guys are going to be doing um, a podcast that's all about the trial called This Land is Our Land. So why don't you yeah. explain to all the listeners exactly what, what, the, what the whole concept is? Right, so the concept... You know, we talked extensively about how to cover this trial. Um, you know, despite our, you know our journalists' extensive interest in this case and yours and your audiences, uh, there are many people out there who listen to OPB who are so sick of hearing of the Bundys that they, <laughs> you know, will send us letters and say, please, please, stop, <laughs> stop telling me about them. I don't want to hear anymore. I lived through this. For 41 days, I've had enough. Um, and so we thought, you know, what better way to give this service to the people who really want to hear about this than to create a podcast, uh, create on-demand content that they can get um, throughout the week about the trial and and make that available to them. And so that, that was kind of our thinking going into it. Um, the format that we're going to go for is that every Friday when there's no court, or most Fridays there will be no court, we're going to uh, produce and release a new episode which will uh, feature journalists who have been covering this trial, attorneys, legal experts, um, some you know people from who support the Bundys and, and that group, and basically any other experts that we would like to have on. Um, and we're also going to be diving into our, well, so those folks will be talking about, you know, sort of what happened at the trial that week and giving some analysis and what that means for the future of the trial. Um, and then we're also going to have segments that kind of dive in a little bit deeper into issues around the trial, things like self-representation or jury selection or, um, you know, the claim of adverse possession, if that comes up in the trial, kind of helping people understand what those issues are and how legal teams may be thinking about those. Um, and, of course, you know, we also want lots of feedback from people who are out there following this. I know, uh, you know, my Twitter is filled voluminously with people who follow this case closely and have a lot of opinions on things that happen there within the trial, and we want to hear from them. And I know there's many, many more out there who I do not reach through my piddly following uh, who have things to say about this. And so we want to hear from them and share their feedback and their thoughts with uh, the larger audience that's out there. Um, and Are you then getting, in addition, excuse me a moment, Ryan, sure. excuse me a moment. Are you getting a lot of um, interaction, feedback, or people wanting to interact on this case that are outside the state? Oh, definitely. Um, you know, I, I, especially during the occupation and, and definitely after, you know, there's many people in western states who have a large interest in this case, and there's people nationally and internationally who also have an interest. I know you know, we were we were very much blessed after the occupation with a lot of people who enjoyed our coverage from all across the country who very generously, you know, would donate to OPB or uh, send us kind words about our coverage. And, and that was just very uplifting for us as a team to see that we were reaching so many people and that so many people cared and appreciated what we were doing. 
the reason I ask is I'm, I'm wondering what's, what the new podcast that, that you are um, producing is. Is it going to um, include um, voices from outside the state, voices that, you know, I mean, obviously it's Oregon Public Broadcasting, the event happened in Oregon, but it does have national implications, and there, there is somewhat of a national interest, uh, although slim. Um, and I, unfortunately, I, I think that the people, you probably agree with me, I think a lot of the people that have been in jail uh, since their arrest and not been out on release to see, touch, feel, I, I think maybe a lot of their supporters are not being fully honest with them about the attention that this really doesn't have in the greater picture of, of our country. Mm-hmm. Um, unfortunate for them. But are you so as part of your podcast, is it going to when you're seeking different people to be a part of it or to, you know, have their opinions voiced or whatever thoughts and stuff, is it gonna be people from outside the state too? Or is it gonna be more focused within? Yeah, no, definitely. Definitely um including people outside the state. Um you know, many of those people are probably going to be from the West because this is obviously an issue that's much closer to home out here where there's far more public lands. Um, but we have no uh, limits on where someone is from. You know, I think if if it's the right person or, you know, even if it's just feedback from a listener, you know, if you're in, in New York and you want to tell us what you think about it, we would love to feature your comment. Um, I can I can say we've already had guests from outside the state. You know, we had a federal prosecutor for one of our upcoming episodes uh, who was from northern Washington, um, and she, she was great, and she had a lot of perspective to offer that is, you know, is outside the typical Oregonian perspective. So, so yeah, we're we're looking forward to having a diverse set of opinions on this show. As the trial... Um as the trial is unfolding, and as you're continuing to produce the, pro- the, the this podcast and the, and the news that you're putting out with it, what is going to um, kind of determine your path as far as, for instance, obviously, you know, public lands is one of the issues here. Um, mm-hmm. Activism, First Amendment, Second Amendment. There's just lots of, lots of different things, you know, <laughs> moving pieces on this. Yeah. When when you're covering something, how in depth are you going to go moving forward with the trials? So, like, say one day or one week of the trials is really focusing on a specific. Are you going to go deeper into that, or is it going to just be focused on the happenings in the trial itself? Um, I think that yeah yeah I think I get what you're saying. Um, I think that that's a challenge. You know, I think that you probably know that well because you have an audience who's super engaged with this topic and you can go, you know, 10 miles deep with it. And it's about, you know, this person who knows that person uh, within the Patriot movement. Um, And I think for us, we want to get some of that depth. We probably won't get, you know, super granular with some of the stuff, but I think what we want to do is to get deep with the people who are going to trial and the issues that are going to be on trial here. So, you know, like you're saying, First Amendment issues as they relate to this specific case, let's talk really deeply about those. Um, let's let's bring on people who can give uh, thoughtful perspectives that maybe we don't think about on a first glance, you know. Um, so I think that's where the depth of this podcast is going to be, is, is going to be diving in to the issues that are specifically related to this trial and, and just digging in as much as we can with those. Because the thing is, is you know, one of the challenges we've already had, and we've produced a few episodes already that we're you know, fine-tuning and getting ready to release very soon here, um, one of the challenges we've had is, you know, you're talking about, say, someone involved in this trial, and suddenly you're talking about the refuge, and you're talking about Jason Patrick, and while Jason Patrick is charged in this case, it's like, well, he isn't going to trial in September, and that's kind of where this initial focus is going to be at. Um, right. And so it's always bringing ourselves back to making sure that our mission with this project is very laser focused on what it needs to be because it's 
as you know, this case is very easy to get off. There's a million different offshoots of this that are fun and interesting to follow, but they may not be within that scope of that mission. Grief to dollar ratio and everything you do. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> I mean, it's you know, everything can be a potential waste of time. I have I have dozens and dozens of half-finished articles drafts sitting there that sounded good initially, <laughs> you know. But then, know but also exactly for me, just being mean. one person again, something else better popped up with, that was more of a now. So with the trials and doing and and producing the podcast, so the podcast is produced. It's not a live podcast. Is that correct? That's correct. Yeah. So we're going to so there will be produced episodes every every week and then throughout the week as as news happens within the courtroom, uh you'll be hearing from Conrad Wilson who's going to be in the courtroom and, and some of our other reporters who may fill in from time to time for him and they're going to tell you, "Okay, this is what happened today. This is what you missed because obviously um the judge in this case has has said, I'm going to keep this fairly limited to who's going to be in the courtroom and who's going to be able to see what's going on here, um, you know, rightfully or wrongfully, however you view that, that's going to be the case. There's going to be a very limited number of seats um, available for people to be in the courtroom, and I think that's mostly going to be limited to the defendants and their close relatives or supporters who are going to be there, as well as some of the media um, so we want to be people's eyes and ears in the courtroom and, and bring bring that news to them. Well, speaking of, of how it's going to work with the limited seating, that was actually going to be my next question. Um, I mean, it, there is not a uh, – correct me if I'm wrong, but it's my understanding that there is no, like, designated seat for you. You guys got to fight just like everybody else for it. Is that kind of correct? Uh, yeah, that's my understanding right now. We're talking to the court about trying to get reserved seats for um, at least some journalists in order to be able to, you know, provide a pool report. Because I think the concern for us and for many other uh, journalists out there is if these seats are just up for grabs and, you know, so some group with a particular viewpoint just happens to be there first on any given day and prevents a balanced report from coming out of the courtroom, then that is a disservice to uh, the larger public. And so, you know, we're trying to see if we can get some sort of setup where, where there is at least one, you know, reserve seat for a pool reporter who can provide information to the rest of the media. Right, right. Yeah, I mean that makes sense because that would be. I think that that would be everybody's concern when they're looking at the, you know, the logistics of of that. Um, the idea of a courtroom, you know, the limited space being filled with only people that reported, say, the way Santilli did, um, and and many of the people that are connected to him in his show that do intend to be there. Um, you know, if that is all, like you said, if that's all that's coming out of there, there's no real full-bodied report that has some right. substance to it. Um, and that's frightening because there are a lot of different historical aspects to this um, all the way around. So with the podcast, um, obviously, regardless of what ultimately happens with the podcast, um, you're obviously still going to be covering the trials and stuff along the way in general um, mm -hmm. as, as a media entity. But have you guys um, considered, uh, you know, do you guys have a benchmark that you think that you need to meet to continue doing the podcast, or are you, or are you committed flat out, at least through the first trial? Um, and, and, and is there plans to do the same for the second? Yeah, we're committed through the first trial um, right now. We want to see how it goes, see what response is, um, what people like about it, what they don't like about it. Um, and, you know, I think ideally, yeah, it would be amazing to do – uh, both the Oregon trials and hopefully the Nevada trial. Now, whether we have the resources to do that is another story. Um, but, you know, this first podcast, you know, is focused on this first trial. And that's kind of the way we've thought about it is like, let's do this, let's do it right um, and do our best work here and see what comes of it. 
you know it may be something like a you know for instance like there's been public radio podcasts about uh the riots in Ferguson right and then mm-hmm. that podcast later extend expand, expanded into an issues oriented podcast so you know there may be life for this podcast after this trial but uh, I think that's a decision to be made down the road. And is is the podcast something that um, you know, like the bulk of the staff is taking part in, or is it like a little like a little spotlight team? Or <laughs> it is like a ragtag team of, <laughs> of people who are very dedicated to this story. So it, it's going to be something where you're going to hear a lot of different voices. You know, you're going to hear from Conrad Wilson. You're going to hear from Amanda Peacher. You're going to hear from me. You're oh, going to hear from John Sepulveda. Um So you're going to hear a lot of different people, but there is a core team within OPB that is working on this. And, and so those people are like myself and... Um, one of our producers, David Blanchard, he's doing a ton of work on this, uh, working hard to make sure that we're booking the right guests and and everything is being put together in a timely manner and meeting all the, you know, hundreds of technical deadlines that go along with podcasting. You know, it, podcasting sounds fun until you try and do it on your own, right? And then it's, you realize <laughs> yeah. all the work that goes into it. I try to tell people all the time because you know you got a lot of people on YouTube and 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 I'm not I'm not bad bad mouthing them but you know if you do a Google Hangout I mean you just go live and most of them that's what they do they don't do a whole lot of right. what we call show prep and all that and because I do come from corporate media there's just a certain way of like you got a show log before the show you know so we yeah. have a beginning a middle and the end you know we know where we're going um, and instead of just being some loose conversation. So yeah, it's all it's all there's a lot of work into into doing a podcast. I actually teach people how to I I have this whole boot camps for bloggers thing that I do and one is a citizen journalism and a podcasting element to it and it's uh people think it's easy until they start to do it and it's like, wow, there's a whole lot involved here because they think they're just going on a show. They're not thinking of producing the show. They're not thinking about guests. They're not thinking of continuity or consistency. They're not thinking about marketing or branding. Well, they might give branding a momentary thing and get some, you know, snazzy graphic and call it good or something, but all the, you know, the real thought of media isn't really put into that. That's one thing I can say uh, for Pete Santilli. You know, he was a heck of a uh, of a self-promoter, you know, and I mean, he really did a a great job of self-promoting, you know, his show. And, you know, most people just don't go to that, that, you know, that ends. So let me ask you, I'm going to ask you a couple of questions real quick before I go into the close and let you go. But mm-hmm. one of the things that, that I think a lot of people wonder is when we're covering these things, because, you know, there's been some funny stuff out, out of this along the way, especially some of the, like, the, the sovereign citizen style motions, but even other stuff for you. What was, like, like a, a funny moment? Um, or something that just really stood out to you as like odd or unusual or just that you're never going to forget, but more on a high oh, note versus, you know, the, a David Fry or. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there are, there were definitely a lot of funny things that have happened. I do have to say that Ryan Bundy's cell filings for me have been some of the strangest and most amusing things to read just from a pure, like, like I try and put myself in his shoes and think about if my case was here, how would I think about this? And it, it's it's just a, such a different perspective for me, you know? I, you know, not in a mocking way, but I just, it's hard for me to understand some of the things he said and why he said them and, you know, to each their own. But, but I have to say that some of the things written within those filings have been quite off the wall and made me giggle a little bit, I have to admit. I, I, I know I know I know two cases for sure. One was Ryan Bundy for me and that was uh that was saying that he was an idiot of the Bundy Society. I did not expect to see that <laughs> that morning when I started right. reading it. I mean, I, I, I get this document first thing in the morning. I'm not even awake yet. I'm, like, I'm literally rubbing my eyes thinking I misread this. But then the other one was months ago when Shauna Cox had, um, you know, was filing a lawsuit for, I, I don't yes. know if it was millions or trillions or billions, but the 666. It was, it was like, 600, oh $666 billion. <laughs> 
idea. It's like, it's just, you know, and, and here's, here's one thing that I want to point out to listeners. Because we live in Oregon, predominantly it is our tax dollars that are paying for all of these delays, all of this stuff. Mm-hmm. And for people to say that they want their rightful speedy trial and all that, they're the ones that are doing the delays, <laughs> you know. Yeah, and they're costing yeah. us taxpayers here in Oregon um, money. But So I'm going to ask you to give some parting thoughts before I close out to the mm-hmm. listeners that are maybe podcasters or YouTubers or bloggers mm-hmm. or consider themselves um, reporters, even if they're only reporting on social media. You know, this whole new digital age of everybody is a writer or whatever the case mm-hmm. may be. What is the best advice you can give them when they're when they're actively trying to cover something, Ryan? I think when you're trying to cover something, I think, you know, there's a few things to follow. One is always try and hear all sides before you report. Um, you know, even if you don't agree with somebody, it, it's important to at least hear them out and understand what they're saying and where they're coming from. It's going to make your reporting better. Two is always, always, always fact check your information. You know, especially in a case like this, it's it's there's always innuendos and there's speculation about things, and it's so important to fact check because, you know. For instance, uh, in Lavoie Finicum's case, you know, the government made this court filing that said that he was uh, involved with someone who had been plotting to bomb a uh, federal site and that... Oh, Tabler, yes. Right, and that turned out to not be entirely accurate. Yes, he knew Keebler, but he wasn't with him on the day when that bombing or when that plan was allegedly supposed to happen. And so it's always important to to fact check and try to double source your information before you report it. And it may mean that you're not first, but it means that you're doing your due diligence to people and you're not um you're not disrespecting them by putting bad information out there. Right, right. Well, Ryan, um, for them to find uh, all the news coverage on OPB for the Oregon standoff, it's opb.org forward slash burns. Is that correct? That That's correct. That will redirect you to our uh, Oregon standoff page, and you can read through as many hours as you can stand of this story. <laughs> and is that where they'll be able to find the links to the podcast? Yes, there will be podcasts. Uh, postings on there um, as new episodes are loading. You can also, will be up on iTunes and NPR One probably by the end of this week or wherever you get your podcasts and you can subscribe to us and and, uh, get the episodes there. Awesome. Ryan, thanks so much for coming on the show. I appreciate having you. It was great. I hope to have you back on and I'll be tweeting out those links for the podcast as uh, as I see them. Um, Thanks so much. I appreciate you. Great. Thanks for having me, Sharon. Keep doing what you do. It's great. Awesome. Anytime. All right. So, you know, as I said, I have a lot of respect for for Ryan. I have a lot of respect for OPP. I have a lot of respect for NPR. I'm really looking forward to OPP's new podcast. Remember, remember it's called This Is Our Land. Um, I think it's going to be a great resource for anybody that's interested in the story from all sides. OPP really does tend to do it right. Don't forget our words have power. They have impact. What impact are your words making and on whom? Do you care? If not, then you are part of the overall problem. It's up to each of us to take responsibility for the propaganda we participate in, whether we create it or curate it. Mass disinformation is caused as much by alternative, independent, and social media as it is by corporate media. Propaganda goes all ways. If you missed part of tonight's show or any of the other on Blog Talk Radio, Podbean, or on the website at challengingtherhetoric.news. If you like what I'm doing, please share my work, whether it's the shows or the articles or both. And if you really want to show your love for what I do, all gratuities to my PayPal are greatly appreciated. And that is what allows me to focus on bringing you the in-depth stories that I write and bringing you the type of shows that I do. Um, I throw the heart in for free. I'll be back live this Friday, just in a couple days, September 2nd at 6 p.m., 9 p.m. Eastern. I'm going to have a very special guest, Chelsea uh, Hamel. Chelsea is the daughter of Scott Drexler, who is under indictment for his participation in the Bunkerville, Nevada, Bundy Ranch episode from 2014. It's going to be a very enlightening show. I think you're all going to be surprised at what Chelsea has to say. 
You don't want to miss that one. Until then, be kind to one another. Whether you like each other or not, be open to people and ideas, all those ideas and those people that challenge your own rhetoric. Whether you have a degree in rhetoric or not, like Ryan has, that's it for me tonight. Thanks for listening. I love you guys. Have a great day.